Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Hemingway, Eichmann, Stranger in a Strange Land, Dylan, Berlin, Bay of Pigs Invasion, Lawrence of Arabia, British Beatlemania, Ole Miss. Oh, we're talking riots, Katie, racial uh, riots. We're talking bigotry, the same old ugly story. Hello again, and welcome to episode 90 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that recklessly adopts Billy Joel's hit song as our marching orders to the biggest headlines, heroes, and villains of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. I'm Tom Fordyce. Tom, I'm wondering how the heck did we get to where we are today? Billy has a notion that it might have something to do with all Miss. Now, this is the University of Mississippi mm. in 1962, which is at the time that Ole Miss hits in the song. There are race riots over the admission of its first black student, James Meredith. And I'm thinking this is so weird. Like America had a problem, still has a problem with this because we've already dealt with this in episode 56, the Little Rock course, episode. Yeah. That was already three years after the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court ruling. And that was when the nine students attempted to enter Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, but they're stopped by police and locals are freaking out about it. And here we are, all these years later, it's still a problem. A lot of questions, Katie, and a a lot of questions to answer. And I'm glad to say we've got a really good guest today. And that's Chuck K. Ross, the Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Mississippi. Chuck, welcome. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on, Tom and Katie. Uh, Looking forward to being able to talk about uh, this very, very historic moment that took place at our university and really changed our overall state. So this is incredible. You're exactly the right person to talk about this, Chuck, because you know James Meredith personally. You educate at that university. And my first question is, okay, so the Supreme Court ruled on a decision in 1954 to desegregate schools across America. Arkansas was lagging, but they got their act together. Mississippi really dragging its feet. Did this Supreme Court ruling not have any teeth? Well, the Supreme Court decision that came down in 1954, this Brown decision in May, it stipulated that the Supreme Court uh, and the decision was supposed to be implemented with all deliberate speed. Now, what that means is basically the Supreme Court doesn't have an army. 
commander-in-chief of the United States Armed Forces in this country, which is president of the United States, is going to have to have that responsibility. And as you talked about, over in Little Rock, um, those nine African-American students filed uh, legislation, went all the way through the Supreme Court. And so Dwight D. Eisenhower reluctantly um, decided to implement this decision. But it had not played itself out uh, in terms of colleges and universities. When you start thinking about schools in the Deep South and when you start thinking about the University of Mississippi and all of its history, James Meredith was extremely conscious about all of the ramifications, what it would mean. He was in the military and in the Air Force for uh, nine years. And so he understood, he saw what happened in, in Little Rock. He saw that the federal government had to respond. And so he decided consciously that he was going to take on segregation and white supremacy at its highest level. And the, the easiest place to start was the University of Mississippi. And so he filed this uh, Supreme Court case and it had to work its way through the system, federal courts, and then it got to the to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court basically said that Mississippi had to capitulate. And so then it fell to the president of the United States, who at the time was John F. Kennedy, had to now implement this um, decision. Chuck, can you describe to us what the University of Mississippi would have been like at this time if Katie and I were to be walking around the campus? Wow. Well, um, (laughs) (laughs) from what I've read and individuals I've talked to, you know, this institution was founded in 1848 really by individuals that own slaves, primarily over in the Delta, that wanted a university that they could send their children to uh, that would not be exposed to these concepts of abolition. And so slavery and, and segregation have been a part of the DNA of this school from the time it was founded. Um, a number of the students went off to the, to the Civil War and were a part of a regiment called the University Grays. They fought uh, at Gettysburg, the, the most important battle in the Civil War. And so for years, the university was tied to these notions and this glamor of what these individuals did in terms of the Civil War, the lost cause. And so a number of people sent their children here um, to meet their prospective uh, husband or wife. Um, Fraternities and sororities were very, very, very powerful. And um, it was an opportunity to socialize at a very high level. Class was very, very important um, in terms of individuals that they wanted to meet and continue to have families and continue to have this kind of aristocracy, this kind of gentry that was a part of the fabric of the founding of this state. And so white supremacy was fundamental. It was crucial. It was it was a part of DNA. It was a part of the identity of individuals. And so most people looked at and walked around this campus with the idea that it probably is always going to be like this. It's always going to be white. It's always going to have, you know, social things where strictly only white students are involved, white professors, um, white football players, whatever the case may be, white cheerleaders, the whole nine yards. And so um, if you were to try to come here in 1960, it looked 
very different than it does today. You walk around campus today, it's an entirely different type of school in terms of the number of people and the diversity of people that you're going to see in terms of where they're coming from, uh, in terms of uh, walks of life. Yeah, so it sounds like in 1962, it was a finishing school for the children of the elite. And all of those kids certainly felt like they were just going to take their parents' place and stay in the ruling class. Yes, exactly. That's exactly the way this uh, school was really kind of founded. And and for a number of decades and generations, it played itself out like that. Mm. Um, So this idea that this system that has been in place is now getting ready to be interrupted by one individual required a number of conversations, people to be extremely alarmed. Uh, And then it's just the audacity that an African-American would now come into this club that has been this way from the time it was established. I mean, it's the audacity. He was a a kind of a a one-man band in terms of being a revolutionary. Give us a sense of who James Meredith is, his background. You did mention that he was in the Air Force. He served for nine years. But growing up, was there any indication that he was going to be following this path of activism? Absolutely. He grew up in a very interesting situation. He grew up not far from Oxford uh, in a small town called Kosciuszko, Mississippi. And the more important aspect was that his father had a level of independence that a lot of African-Americans didn't necessarily have. A number of African-Americans were sharecroppers tenant farmers, they work for white people in agricultural, uh, picking cotton. And so they were susceptible to all of the problems that come from working for somebody else. They could take your house, they could fire you, they could kick you off the land, so on and so forth. His father owned his own land. um, And so they had crops that they raised. They were very kind of insulated as a black family. And I think his father instilled a certain level of kind of pride within the context of what's going on during this time period that you can achieve whatever you want to achieve. You're not a second class citizen. There aren't necessarily any limitations in society that you have to conform to. Going into the military also really prepped him for what he was going to do because he was one of the first individuals when as the military began to be desegregated after 1948, um, he was one of the first individuals in the Air Force and so he was moved around on a number of bases and invariably he might be the only African American on that base, only African American in that regiment. He had to deal with hostility from individuals who had not been around African Americans and so when he got out of the Air Force he understood there's the Constitution, there's the military, and invariably the military can provide a certain level of protection for you if you, in fact, decide to do that. I think also he got a certain amount of discipline. He understood, you know, fear uh, from a perspective as a soldier. I think all of this played into him. So from his founding, he had a kind of independence. He goes into the military that gives him another layer. And I think that um, the whole time after he gets out of the Air Force, he spends two years at Jackson State. And the whole time he was at Jackson State, he talked to a number of people about he was going to go and integrate the University of Mississippi and people invariably said, you know, what do you think about why? Uh, In fact, uh, my first cousin uh, was at Jackson State with him 
And they had a number of conversations about what he was thinking. And he was absolutely focused that this was something that he needed to do to help to begin to change uh, the way this state has been set up for African-Americans. Wow. So he had a mission. He was a man on a mission. Oh, there's no doubt about it. He, he And he talks about how his father really planted this seed and he bought into it that you actually can do this. You know, this was something that was planned. This wasn't something that he just kind of woke up and decided, hey, you know, I'm going to I'm going to decide to go on ahead and go to University of Mississippi. No, he meticulously because he wanted to go to the place that he knew was going to provide the most resistance. It's an extraordinarily brave thing to do, Chuck. I'm interested how the University of Mississippi at this point would stop African-American students from getting in, because would you have to stipulate your background on an admissions form? How subtle and how nasty and how egregious were these ways of stopping African-Americans enrolling? Well, you have to understand that, you know, it's kind of difficult because we're looking at this from a kind of modern 2022 kind of perspective. But first of all, there's an informal, you know, Emmett Till was lynched uh, in 1955, a 14 year old boy for absolutely for just looking at a white woman the wrong way, supposedly whistling at her, uh, getting out of line. And the individuals who were uh, arrested and charged and went to trial basically didn't apologize. In fact, openly, for the most part, admitted that they, in fact, yes, we yeah, we did this. Uh, and they went scot-free. So for African-Americans in this state, you understood that it, there are certain lines that are that are in place. There's a certain level of respect that you're supposed to give whites. You're supposed to be very deferential. And to apply to the University of Mississippi, you're, you're, you're in essence saying that you, you're, you're, you're probably going to open yourself up to some kind of violence. There's going to be some kind of response. There's going to be some kind of backlash. Yeah. Are you really willing to do that? Uh, Megar Evers, who was the first field secretary of the NAACP in 1953, applied and uh, they subsequently changed the overall admission requirements. Uh, for example, it went from like two individual alumni that you needed to have a sign a reference letter for you to like six. Right. There was a lot of red tape, you know, that would take place. And Meredith knew that. Uh, and importantly, he reached out to Megar Evers, who really was supportive. And then in the NAACP, Thurgood Marshall uh, was the first African-American to serve on the Supreme Court. In essence, took the case. He and Meredith didn't necessarily see eye to eye. And so Thurgood Marshall decided to assign the case to his top lawyer, who was Constance Baker Motley. She had a personality that meshed more with Meredith. She kind of rolled with the punches. Uh, She was very meticulous, very tough like him, and very driven. Uh, She worked the case all the way up from the lower level, all the way up through the Supreme Court. And eventually, even though Mississippi made all of these kind of kind of ludicrous kind of arguments about why uh, Meredith should not be admitted and um, why segregation was something kind of legal for their state and for this particular university. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court basically stipulated that they had to admit him by uh, September of 1962. So get a load of this. James Meredith wrote in his application letter to Ole Miss, nobody handpicked me. I believed and believe now that I have a divine responsibility. I am familiar with the probable difficulties involved in such a move as I am undertaking, and I am fully prepared to pursue
pursue it all the way to a degree from the University of Mississippi. Now, that is a manifesto. I'm wondering, so the order comes down from the Supreme Court that University of Mississippi has to allow him to attend. But it seems that the state's governor, Ross Barnett, made it his mission to keep Mississippi schools from being integrated. I'm wondering, Chuck, what drove the government? Was it just plain old business as usual racism? Were there political considerations? Oh, it was all of the above. I think that uh, Ross Barnett had run as a kind of good old boy, he was going to represent the mass of white people in this state. And as he articulated on a number of occasions, that as long as he was governor, he was going to make sure that the university remained uh, all white. Of course, uh, one of the interesting aspects of him is that uh, he had all these negotiations, conversations with the Kennedy administration, John, and his brother, Robert, who was the attorney general. A lot of those tapes are at the uh, Civil Rights Museum up in Memphis, and they're very interesting in that the Kennedys are going back and forth about we've got to we, we've got a court order. You know, this isn't something that we created. The Supreme Court put this in our lap. We now have to enforce it. We need him to be protected. Can you guarantee us that he's going to be protected? Barnett goes back and forth and really, you know, never commits to being able or willing to protect uh, Meredith because he's looking at this from the perspective that he wants to get reelected. And um, he has no natural love for African-Americans. And so he's trying to save face and he's trying to keep the university all white with the hope that maybe uh, Meredith may, in fact, give up. And he underestimates the tenacity of of James Meredith. Ross Barnett, on the 29th of September, the University of Mississippi is playing Kentucky down in Jackson. He goes and he demands that he wants to speak to the crowd at halftime. And in essence, he basically articulates that, you know, I love Mississippi. I love and respect our heritage and customs and I love our people. It's almost as though he's saying, I love all the white people in Mississippi. I mean, people go crazy. And he, in essence, almost tries to make this public pledge that he's going to keep the university uh, from being integrated. And um, that really gets people fired up. And when they come back and they see Marshall surrounding the Lyceum, they feel like the federal government has snuck Meredith in while they were down at this football game, that Ross was telling us that he was going to make sure that this wasn't going to happen. And he's our leader. But yet the federal government is invading us again like they invaded us during the Civil War. So that almost facilitates a certain amount of real animosity from the beginning. When students begin to come back to campus, ride back on the train, and they see the federal marshals have surrounded the Lyceum, they are just really upset that while we were down at the football game having a good time and our leader was telling us and pledging that this wasn't going to happen, John F. Kennedy and them are now uh, have decided to sneak him in uh, and what are we going to kind of do about it? So that kind of creates this framework of what happens with this riot uh, on that Sunday night. Chuck, it seems to escalate extraordinarily quickly. It's within an hour or so that the rioting begins and thousands of people turn up on campus. Yes, um, there's some 
circumstances that, you know, as they, as these students begin to come back, they see the marshals, this general uh, who led the federal troops in aiding the nine African-Americans to integrate Central Arkansas. He comes to Oxford and he, in essence, holds court uh, in the middle of campus, basically tells people, what are you going to do about this? This is your state. This is your school. He also articulates that what I did in, in Little Rock was wrong. That was the wrong thing to do. I should not have helped the federal government to integrate that. And this is General Edwin Walker. This is General Edwin Walker, exactly. And so he's at the monument and he's getting people whipped up. The other factor is that we were in the process of building our biology building called Shoemaker. And there were just numerous pallets of bricks that have been Uh, set out. Right. And this really almost takes on a kind of final battle of the Civil War for a number of people. For a number of people here in the South, and particularly in Mississippi, the whole idea that the South lost the Civil War is hard, is, is, is been something that's very, very difficult to stomach because when you go to the square, um, which is our where our town center is located, there's another monument on the square. And we have 82 counties in this state. And I, I would guarantee that the vast majority of them at the courthouse, you have these monuments to these Confederate soldiers. And throughout the South, probably Alabama, South Carolina, Georgia, these small towns, And the idea is that these young men exhibited a certain amount of courage, that they didn't lose the war because they couldn't fight or or they didn't exhibit the kind of tenacity, um, that there were some other variables that were involved that they don't even deal with the whole concept that African-Americans were liberated and and got into the war and helped them maybe change it by 185,000 African-Americans fighting. But they deal with it is that this was was a noble cause. And so people began to just trickle in here with that same kind of mindset. I mean, there's there's an interesting story as things began to just really deteriorate and it begins to become more and more violent and these marshals are holding on, trying to use tear gas. Paul Johnson, who's a lieutenant governor, comes to Oxford and there's an old gentleman that shows up with a Civil War musket from his grandfather, great grandfather. And he tells the lieutenant governor, where do you want me to go? I mean, and that in a lot of ways just epitomizes what this was all about, that a lot of the riot and a lot of the participation was that, you know, hey, these Yankees are getting ready to invade us and they're using this African-American and we're just not going to stand for it. We're going to we get there's a call to arms. We've got to respond. This is our school. This is our state. Uh, and so it becomes very, very intense uh, in terms of the violence, the shooting and all of the things that take place that night. And those marshals were extremely lucky to really hold on uh, until the federal authorities, until the military comes out of Memphis and arrives, almost kind of like uh, helping them to, uh, to survive the rest of the night. And where is James Meredith in the middle of this melee? <laughs> James Meredith is, is in Baxter Hall. Uh, he's on campus. He's surrounded by federal marshals. 
And again, this really epitomizes, you know, the way he doesn't acknowledge kind of fear publicly. You ask him, what was he doing that night? And he said he didn't hear anything. He was fast asleep. <laughs> right. <laughs> so what a, what a, what a no, cool character. No yes. one's asleep in Oxford that night. And, yeah. and there were fatalities, though, weren't there? Yes, there was a, uh, a bystander from Oxford that was killed, shot and killed, and then a uh, reporter Gilliard, a French reporter that was also shot and killed. Uh, We have never brought charges against anyone. A couple of marshals were wounded. Many people didn't think they were going to survive during the night, and they were able to kind of um, patch them up. Uh, The Lyceum turned into almost a kind of breakout headquarters for these uh, for these marshals uh, and um, they had run out of tear gas and they were very close to being overrun when the foreign and third um, unit comes out of uh, Memphis and arrives and begins to restore order back here on campus and throughout the city of Oxford as well. Well, Chuck, it sounds like this is like a, a little leftover last gasp, uh, final battle of the Civil War, the way you're portraying it. Yes, it's an excellent book that uh, has been written by a journalist uh, called uh, The Battle of Oxford. And it's a meticulous blow by blow look at uh, mm. what happened in terms of how the riot starts and what happens throughout the night and the fallout. And in essence, uh, it's, it's an argument that uh, this, in fact, really does represent this last kind of battle of the Civil War that uh, when you when you think about, you know, a number of things that had taken place uh, in terms of federal legislation, Plessy versus Ferguson and Brown decision and Little Rock and uh, a number of people losing their lives, um, getting out of place as African-Americans and this whole real commitment to white supremacy that really evolves once the Civil War ends. This was the last kind of stand um, where you have this level of overtness. The more positive thing is, is that uh, in many ways, this helps to, without a doubt, fundamentally change the state of Mississippi and the University of Mississippi. I make an argument that the University of Mississippi actually begins to be founded as a real live university and institution, one that is open to all people uh, on October the 1st of 1962. Uh, When you look at the state of Mississippi and you look at the number of individuals that are now in the legislature that have now become mayors and, and here I sit talking to two individuals in London at the University of Mississippi as a faculty member, and I'm the acting chair of the history department. And so all of these things, um, I wouldn't be able to sit here, all of these things that have, have taken place because of the courage and the tenacity and the audacity of James Meredith thinking that this is possible, that I'm gonna make sure that this can happen. This can, and somebody's gotta make a stand. And in fact, uh, you know, um, it's very difficult to really thank him and articulate what he did. Um, you really just have to look at where Mississippi was and where we are now. And it's very clear that his gesture is very, very, very difficult um, to measure up to. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello Fire listeners, it's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you 
about better help. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com slash WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So, last night I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Just going back to the night itself and the, that dramatic escalation, Chuck, was the Kennedy administration taken by surprise? Were there some misjudgments on behalf of JFK and his brother Robert? <laughs> I don't think there were any misjudgments. I think the Kennedys knew exactly what they were working with. Um, the Kennedys had a clear experience with the South. The Freedom Riders started off in 1961, and John F. Kennedy and his brother Robert were politicians. They were in a changing Democratic Party. They were in a party in which Southerners were leaving. And, and so they were trying to, in essence, keep the voting South to continue to support and identify with the Democratic Party nationally. And in 1961, when CORE 
and uh, individuals from SNCC decided that they were going to initiate these freedom rides and they left out of Washington, D.C. Robert Kennedy was really livid about why are you guys going and challenging segregation? Why don't you just work on voter registration? Because he was in essence saying, you're getting ready to now put us in a box because when you go down on these buses and you go into the South and now you're going to have a violent reaction by individuals, either in law enforcement or local people, you're going to put now the federal government in a box to have to come and protect you. We don't need this headache. And so they were clear about what Southerners would do when pushed. And so this idea that, you know, they weren't totally sure that, you know, maybe they could believe that Ross Barnett was going to fulfill his responsibilities as governor and make sure that the Mississippi Highway Patrol stayed in place and and making sure that Meredith was brought in without any kind of violence. If anything, uh, they knew just the opposite was going to happen. They made a political decision because John F. Kennedy wanted, again, to look as though he was being very reactionary, that he was not the aggressor. And so he was not going to deploy the military when he should have deployed the military. And things would have been very, 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 very different in terms of the way in which uh, they played themselves out in terms of violence, that if you had the army in place, people would have been very upset. People in the Democratic Party and the leadership may have continued to uh, leave in, in droves. And that would have made it very, very difficult for them to potentially get reelected again in 1964. It's, it's a staggering number of troops that is deployed in the end. It's 30,000 in total, isn't it, which is the largest ever single disturbance in US history and yet Meredith manages to enroll the very next day on the 1st of October. Yes, uh, he, uh, he manages to enroll the next day. In fact, uh, the marshals drive him down the hill from Baxter to the Lyceum. He comes into the Lyceum and the registrar is there to wait for him and uh, they enroll him, they give him a schedule. And then they proceed to walk him across campus from the Lyceum, short distance, to Bondurant, um, where his first class takes place. And he goes upstairs and he sits in a classroom. And of all things, his first class that he takes at the University of Mississippi with all of this backdrop is American history. And uh, he does an excellent job. I think the other thing that um, has been forgotten is that he graduates from the university in the summer of 1963. And so it's one thing to cause this big uproar, all of this people, you know, articulating that African-Americans don't have the, the intellectual wherewithal to be successful as students here, not even taking under consideration the death threats that he had to withstand. And every day that you get up and you walk to Bondurant or Peabody or whatever building you have to go in, nobody wants to sit next to you. Nobody wants to talk to you, go in and try to eat. Nobody sits next to you. You got marshals accompanying you. Every day you get up, you have to think about it. This the day somebody runs up to you. Are these marshals going to protect you? Does somebody try to kill you? But you still got to do your homework. You got to turn in papers. You got to take exams. You're a student. He finishes the mission. 
he must have had such a sense of how significant he was and the fact that he was able to stay the course through being harassed through his semesters at Ole Miss. How was he as a man able to stand up to this constant psychological torment? He has this ability, from my perspective, to be somewhere physically, but not be in that same location mentally, emotionally, or psychologically. So he was able to not give any indication that I'm worried. Even in interviews, he was very protective of his honesty. He doesn't say, oh, you know, I'm worried and I don't know if these marshals are going to protect me or if some crazy white person is going to come up to me. And so that has been a survival mechanism that he's utilized. And I think that he didn't turn that off, I think, right away when he left the university and he was involved in a number of kind of conservative kind of pursuits and connections with conservative individuals. Uh, He got involved in his March Against Fear in 1966. But when you ask him questions, I think reporters can get very frustrated with him because he is going to protect his honesty. He's going to protect all the frailties that make him a actual human being. I'm not going to give that to you. I've got to protect this so that I can continue to move forward and move throughout the world. It's such a remarkable legacy that that he has, Chuck. Do you see that he's mellowed at all as he's got older because he's in his very late 80s now and as he looks back on his life and must be able to see around him in the fabric of his nation the changes that he helped to bring about has he changed at all he has changed Um, when we dedicated uh, we have a monument on our campus um, to him when the university dedicated it um, like 2012 uh, we had a football game and he came and tailgated. And that was one of the f- first times I saw him open himself up from the perspective that uh, he sat in the area in the Grove and a number of African-American students came up and they wanted to thank him and he interacted. He didn't say anything about not being a role model or throw them off. He took a bunch of pictures. Even during that time period that we were there tailgating, he actually pulled me to the side and said, do you think they're really going to do this? They're really going to dedicate the monument? I said, yeah, man, they're going to dedicate the monument. So that was the one time I saw him give me a certain level of kind of human honesty. I think that he's kind of um, felt that, hey, number one, I've lived a long time. 89 is a long time and to still have your faculties. And then you look around and, you know, your, your son received a Ph.D. from the university. You've got a granddaughter now that has graduated. You know, there's some real things that you've seen that have taken place. And so maybe it's time for you to accept those kind of accolades. This is something uh, I was reading up on James Meredith and a couple of things that he got up to in the 60s after he graduated caught my eye. He continued with his activism and talk about strange political bedfellows. James Meredith was a supporter of the unsuccessful 1967 gubernatorial bid of his arch nemesis, 
Ross Barnett, which is completely bizarre to me. And also, he supported the 1991 gubernatorial campaign of ex-Ku Klux Klansman David Duke. And he also worked for the avowed segregationist Jesse Helms in the early 1990s. Do you have any insights as to why he would be working with or supporting these kind of people? Well, that's a phase of his life that individuals like myself really struggle with because this idea that you're going to try to help Ross Barnett get reelected because you're really trying to help him in a certain sense. You're going to extend a certain level of forgiveness. Helms was the one individual that responded in Congress when you were trying to get some kind of grant or whatever the deal was. And I'm not sure what the David Duke connection, I think that in a certain sense, he looks at these kind of neoconservative individuals as individuals who are given a message that African-Americans have got to not necessarily rely on the government. You got to do these things on your own. He's always seen himself as a lone soldier. He's always tried to publicly articulate that he didn't see himself as a part of the civil rights movement. I take issue with that. If he was here, I would articulate, hey, wait a minute. If you were you were a lone person and you you were just lone soldier, yes, okay, we'll get we get that. But in order to get this done, you had to run to Mega Evers. And Mega Evers reached out to Thurgood Marshall and others. You didn't have the money to get this done. And so you needed the civil rights organizations and individuals that were committed to fundamental change in this state, in this country to get this done. So you can't distance her. So you can't have it both ways. Exactly. And the other thing is, in order to accomplish what he accomplished, which was huge, and to have the right stuff and to have the metal to tough it out, you have to be ornery. You have to be contrary. So it seems like the, the attributes that enabled him to succeed make him also a little bit prickly and maybe he's not playing ball with right. the, the rest of the team. Right. It's very difficult now, you know, so all of a sudden, you know, you, you're thinking outside the box. You come up with this on your own. Nobody else is willing to do this. But yet you're going to now lead me, Dr. King, or some other kind of civil rights leader. No, 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 no. I'm not going to let you do that. And so I think that that's been the other aspect of him is that made, that's made it very difficult for him to really kind of be accepted in, in a certain sense in terms of the whole African-American community. Because on the one hand, when you start making those kind of statements that you're not really a part of the civil rights movement for African-Americans, that's a head scratcher because it's, you know, it's a situation where if you're an African-American, almost you don't have much of a choice because the civil rights movement is something that has been fundamental in trying to make your life better and to say that you don't, that you don't want to necessarily be connected to it. Black people in this country, it's very difficult for you to just be totally individualistic. You're always going to kind of, regardless of, you know, how much money or what kind of prestige, whether you're the president of the United States, Barack Obama, when you're driving your car in Montana, you're an African-American when the police mm-hmm. pull you over. Uh, you right. Michael Jordan and you you sitting up here and you own uh, the Charlotte Bobcats and you have uh, posters in all kind of people's bedrooms uh, in the suburbs all across the country. When you're driving through Montana and they pull you over, uh, you're a black man behind the wheel of a car 
and if it's a white police officer, there are going to be a lot of things that's going to go through your mind, just like they're going to go through my mind when they pull you over. And so there is that um, component that makes it kind of difficult for you to kind of accept uh, some of the positions that he's taken. Well, it sounds like from what you've said that James Meredith has gotten his head right about this, and he has finally taken on the mantle of being a civil rights trailblazer. And in fact, he deserves that mantle. Yes, he does. You know, on the one hand, I think that, you know, he's not going to just relax, but he also likes people to acknowledge what he achieved because he understands deep down inside that very, very few human beings on this earth could have achieved what he was able to achieve. Casey, we're, we're really lucky on this podcast. We get to talk to some fascinating people and hear their stories and their perspectives. But Chuck, I have to say today has been a really special episode for us, for your your expertise, your insight and your personal dealings with the extraordinary man who is James Meredith. I'd like to say thank you very much. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Some of those insights, Katie, I was just sitting and listening spellbound. Yeah. What's interesting to me is the fact that James Meredith is a reluctant hero and how it frustrates his disciples, his fans, like, you know, come on, just admit. Of course, that, yeah. Yeah, you, you saved our bacons. You made it possible for us to have an education and, and to, to do as much as we wanted to with our lives. And he sort of not playing the game. I have to admit that I have a begrudging respect for that sort of contrariness. Yeah. And we often do this, Casey, don't we? When we hear about these people who have changed the course of history, I don't know if you do this, but I try and imagine how I would react in that situation. I wouldn't have anywhere near the gumption, the bravery and the, as you said, the orneriness of James Meredith yeah. to do what he did. He did a kind of that technique that uh, Chuck was talking about. It sounded a little bit like disassociation where mm. he just does this Zen thing of taking himself out of the moment, just focusing on getting through this this Herculean task that he set for himself. 
Yeah, absolutely. If you would like another podcast to listen to before Katie and I return, make sure you check out Eliza, A Robot Story. Now, this is a dark near-future science fiction podcast about a robot who can feel and the world that attempts to control her. When Eliza falls in love with the man who controls her, they work together to make her fully sentient. But consciousness doesn't come without consequences. As Eliza gets caught in a web of both loving and abusive relationships, she has to fight to survive. It's fiction, or is it? Just search for Eliza, A Robot Story, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, robots, and if you have any guest ideas or just something you'd like to get off your chest, share with us. You can contact us on email at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk or on social media. We're at Spread That Fire on Instagram and Twitter. Next week, Katie, we are going to infinity and beyond. Oh, um, is that... Um, somewhere in the outskirts of Manchester. <laughs> We're going to talk about John Glenn. John Glenn! He went a little bit further than Manchester, didn't he? <laughs> he did. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. 
Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.